All right, guys. <clears throat> Got your Bible? Find uh, Galatians chapter 5. This is our last week in our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We have considered how Scripture leads us to think through the different aspects of the Spirit's fruit in our lives. Fruits that, that's not just random, uh, random character qualities that Paul or anybody else thinks <clears throat> ought to be there or thought would be nice to be displayed in the life of a Christian, but fruit that, when displayed in us, captures what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And then what we'll consider tonight, self-control. We've pointed out repeatedly, I don't, I don't, every, time I've, every time I've taught, and I think when Carrie and Riley also taught a few times, we've pointed out a number of times that what Jesus said in John 16 about the Spirit's coming, that when the Spirit came, Spirit would glorify Christ. That's his role in this world, is to glorify Christ. And, and, and so that when he glorifies Christ in us, that means the Holy Spirit would cause the presence and the character of Christ in us to increase while we in our flesh decrease over time. And therefore, we've tried to take our cue, and most, most of these weeks we try to take our cue to say, as we think about each aspect of the fruit, we've said, first, what did it look like in Jesus? What did that particular thing look like in Jesus' life and ministry and his teaching? And then um, that would be, if, whatever that looks like, that's going to be the Spirit's aim of producing us. And so that's been our, um, our, our tack on most of these. And the reason for that is because the culture around us, not only because that's what I just said about the Spirit's role, but also the culture around us that we live in, the, the whole cultural stream that we're just constantly in, the culture has often has competing conceptions and competing definitions of what these things are. Um, and, and, and we have to carefully distinguish between the cultural conception that we're constantly swimming in of these things versus what the Lord Jesus himself said it was or displayed that it was. That love, for example, right? That was the first one. Love, as, culture, as our culture defines it, may not, and indeed in our culture, does not look exactly what lo love looked like in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, in what it approves and what it disproves and, and how, it, how it demonstrates itself in, in, in life. Same with goodness, same with joy, and on down the line. So for most of the weeks, we've been, me and Carrie and Riley, and we've been, we've been starting with the life or the teaching of Jesus in, in the Gospels. And then talk about whatever that aspect of the fruit looked like in him. Then we come back to ourselves, see it in Jesus first, and then let's proceed to translate that to our lives in practical ways. Tonight, as we come to the last aspect of the fruit, self-control, I don't necessarily want to avoid following that method, but I do want to close in, in that this is not just another, another aspect of the fruit, but we're closing out the series. I do want to talk about it a little self-control um, a little differently uh, and, and do it in such a way that we're bringing all of them to a close okay so to do that we're going to spend the bulk of our focus tonight in Galatians chapter 5 our main text which surprisingly in this series we've given little attention to um, for reasons I've already explained I uh, will have some other uh, scripture references too I hope you have your Bible I hope you're ready to 
look at texts with me. Um, and by the way, I'm, I, I don't want to just ignore Jesus. Surely self-control exemplified, was exemplified in Jesus in, in everything he did. It's a very broad category. So you have, you have, you know, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's obviously self-control. Uh, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's self-control. Uh, or, or he was beaten and mocked, and yet he opened not his mouth. That's self-control. Uh, when he was struck, he turned the other cheek, taught us to do the same. Self-control. Um, the examples we could give in Jesus' life are endless. So what I'd like to do is dive a little deeper into what Paul is saying here in Galatians 5 about self-control, uh, thinking about the, the what of self-control, and then wrap the whole series up and bring it to a conclusion. I want to think about the how of self-control and every other aspect of the fruit here. Paul gives us good instructions in verses 24, 25, and 26. So if, I'm going to go ahead and tell you where we're going, then we'll read it, and then we'll dive into it. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see. First of all, I want to talk first about the meaning of self-control, the meaning of self-control as Paul presents it here. I think it will be helpful to see how Paul and other New Testament writers often link self-control to one particular aspect of our behavior. It's going to be instructive for us, though not exclusively to that, but primarily, at least first and foremost to that. The meaning of self-control. Second, and this will be the other point, I want to think about the method of our obedience. The method of our obedience, which we'll see particularly in Galatians 6, I mean, it's Galatians 5, 24 through 26. And I think in those three verses, 24, 25, and 26, Paul reminds us of three different realities that are available to the Christian to help us walk in obedience. Or as he puts it here, to walk by the Spirit. All right? So before we go any further, let's read Galatians 5. And just to get the fuller context, let's begin in verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also walk by the spirit 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you give us help as we study your word, which is inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. And um, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth clearly, minds to understand it, give us hearts to embrace it, wills to obey it. Me the help that I need to teach, and would you give us all ears to hear, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've told you how I want us to break this down and, and, and think about this last aspect of the fruit. So let's start at the beginning and think about the meaning of, of self-control. Paul uses a word, there translated self-control, that is, is, is found just a few times in the New Testament. Not a, but not a ton. We glean a little bit about what that word means by how he uses it in the New Testament, the few times we do see it. But we also know what the, what the word means and how it was often used in the way and the examples that we have of how that, word, that same word was used in ancient times, in ancient writings outside the New Testament. Um, and I, and, and, and I, we're going to get there. Before we get to the meaning of it, what it is, though, all right, lay it out, I do want to point out that for just from a couple of other places that it appear, this word appears in the New Testament. Whatever it means, self-control, whatever, however we define that, it is a significant aspect of the Christian life. Judging from the couple of places, like I said, where the word is used. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples. You can jot down these references if you want. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, the apostle Paul is, he's been arrested He's been bounced around from one, one, one trial to another while he is on his way eventually to stand trial before Caesar himself. Acts 24, he is standing trial before the governor, Felix. And while he was on trial before Felix, the text says in Acts 24, 24, Felix says, it, it says Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's verse 24. Felix sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about. In the very next verse, in verse 25, it elaborates further on what speaking to Felix about faith in Christ Jesus, what that meant. And here's what verse 25 says in Acts 24. It says that Paul reasoned, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. You can kind of see how important self-control is for the Christian life when Paul includes it in, a, in the midst of a discussion on faith, righteousness, and the coming judgment. Self-control is right in there. Or uh, a second example. The Apostle Peter includes it in, in, his, in a list for him, is, which is a non-negotiable uh, list of character qualities for a believer. When he says 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and following. 2 Peter 1, 5 and following. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, 
and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. It, it seems like that whenever the apostles in the New Testament gave, gave a list of what, what character qualities of a, of a follower of Christ, what it ought to include, self-control is always there. And, and in the same breath with faith and love and godliness, even the coming judgment, things like that. Not to mention that the, 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 the word falls right here in Galatians chapter 5 in this list. So whatever we're going to find when we take a closer look at the meaning of the word and how it was often used, based on other places where the word is, is used but not even necessarily carefully defined in those places, you see that it's not an optional aspect of the Christian life. It's a distinctive marker of one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So what is it? What is self-control? Well, at root, obviously, it is exactly what it says. It is having control or mastery over yourself. And we're going to see that in application of that, um, Scripture at times uses it just like we do, which, which is to say it uses it very broadly. Um, we'll see that in just a second. But outside of the New Testament in ancient writings... And also some places in the New Testament, there is often, with this word, a very specific application of it. Self-control in one particular area in particular. And that is sensual or sexual sin. Okay, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says that the, the Greek word that Paul used there, um, inkrateia, that's the word. Quote, it denotes control of more sensual passions than, for example, anger. Or another scholar, Philip Ryken, says it, it most often referred to, quote, sensual matters like eating, drinking, and sex. That was, that was most often the application of that word outside the New Testament in, in ancient Greek times. And we do see the Apostle Paul using that same word, not here, but elsewhere in the New Testament, in that same sense. I'll give you two examples of that. The first is, and you can turn to these or you can just jot them down. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. Here's what he says there. To the unmarried and the widows... I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So right there, self-control is directly contrasted with being aflame with uncontrolled sexual passion. The other example is right here in, in, in Galatians 5. And you can look at it. And it's why we read the text with its fuller context earlier when we started back in chapter 15. Because sometimes we're bad at about looking so closely at a verse or two that we forget the whole context it's sitting in that actually sheds light on the meaning of the, verse, the one or two verses we're looking at. 
So in this whole list of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, what are, they, what are these things being contrasted with in this broader context of this passage? They're being con- the fruit of the Spirit are being contrasted here with the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21. And look at the things listed there. The first one out of the gate of the works of the flesh in verse 19 is sexual immorality. What's the second one? Impurity, meaning sexual impurity. What's the third one? Sensuality. You see what I'm saying? You can also see at the very end of the, uh, the list, in, verses tw- in verse 21, drunkenness and orgies. So this whole list is bookended by sexual sin. And, it's con- and, sex- and self-control here is contrasted with that. So self-control in the New Testament is first and foremost conceived in these terms. And again, how serious is that? What does Paul say in verse 21? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality and sexual impurity is not a light thing in the Christian life. It's not a struggle to simply shrug off and not take seriously. It's not the kind of sin that you want to have, the kind of accountability partner, where when you confess your struggle, they go, yeah, me too. Yeah, we'll try better next week. It's more serious than that. Right? It's, it, it, when Paul said... what. What Paul says in verse 21 is about as serious as it gets. And what he's describing in verse 21 is someone who is continuing unrepentantly in that sin. And so somebody who just shrugs it off, that's evidence of unrepentance. But he presumes, he presumes, and rightly so, that for the one who has put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, repentance has happened. And as Martin Luther famously said, the entire life of the believer would be one of repentance. Meaning the whole life of the believer will be a turning away of the former things. And that statement right there that I just made shows you that in the Christian life, things that you may struggle with sexually not only must become the former things, they can become the former things. Not by your sheer will, but by the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life. If you're a follower of Christ, there is no unconquerable force or power in you causing you to look at porn. There is no unconquerable power in you causing you to sleep with your boyfriend, sleep with your girlfriend, or to cross boundaries you know you shouldn't even come near. What may feel like an unconquerable power in you, an unconquerable urge, an urge that you just, you have failed time and time again to, to, to battle and you've given into it and it feels unconquerable. What that, doing th- those things more than, you, you know, what, that's what, what is that in you? It's not an unconquerable power. What is it? I think it's what Paul himself calls in 2 Timothy 3 as being a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. The love of, of one is in practice 
intensely stronger than the other. But I chose unconquerable for a reason. Because in your flesh, it is unconquerable. You may, if there's no repentance in you, you may just be in your flesh and in need of conversion to Christ. But if you're in Christ by repentance and faith, there is no sin or struggle that is ultimately unconquerable for you. Not that all temptation and struggle will fully and finally disappear in this life. It won't ever in this life. But it does mean that in that temptation and in that struggle that still exists, self-control is the mark of your life. Before we talk about the how of obedience, which we'll talk about in just a minute, because I know some of you may be wondering that, I do need to keep, complete the picture of self-control because it's not, um, while, while it first and foremost has to do with sensual and sexual matters, it doesn't merely have to do with that. Paul uses inkratea, self-control, elsewhere more generally. For example, here's another example that you can jot down. 1 Corinthians 9.25. 1 Corinthians 9.25, this word is found there. Where he says, every athlete, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Meaning, he's not just talking about sexual matters, he's talking about every area of life, in all things. He said they do it in all things, we do it in all things, just for a different reason. And again, if you just look up in, here in Galatians 5, that's the second example. <laughs> In verses 19 to 21, and the works of the flesh that are listed there, that Paul is contrasting with the fruit of the Spirit, you do see other things like idolatry and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. All those things have to do with our words and our actions and a whole lot of other areas of our life. Control over our words, control over our attitudes, control over bitterness and anger, over our desires. And really, I don't think it's by accident that self-control is last on the list of the fruit. That it's, it is to be seen in, in, in much the same way like as love was at the beginning of the list. Because I, we made an, I made an argument, I think I did. If I didn't, if I didn't say it, I thought it and I apologize, I didn't say it. I think love is at the beginning of the list because it is a controlling motif of everything that comes after. Right? So love influences joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness. It, it influences all those. On the same, by the same token, um, let me just, let me, I, I don't think I said all that. So let me just dwell on that for love for just a minute. It controls it. So what, I'm, what I mean by that is Love, like when, when love is contrasted with the fruit of the, the, those, those works of the flesh, if love is so strong in the, in the believer that it, love can't live comfortably alongside some of those things like jealousy and anger and rivalry and dissension and whatever. And so self-control is much the same way on the back end. Um, and, and even, you know, it, it, it influences its meaning is derived some through all the others is what I'm trying to say. And even has to do with sexual matters. It, it, it's striving to, to love Christ and love others with the love of Christ 
in a self-controlled way at all times. Kindness in a self-controlled way. Goodness in a self-controlled way. Faithfulness and gentleness. That's what I'm trying to say. But how? How do we strive for this? How do we seek after the fruit of self-control in our lives? And all these ways that we talked about, especially in sexual sin, sensual sin. Um, how do we walk in obedience? What I want to spend the rest of our time is, in, is looking at verses, the last three verses of, of Galatians 5. Verse 24, 25, and 26. And three realities that he lays out there that um, enable us to walk in obedience in Christ's likeness. Yes, in self-control, but fittingly, as the last installment of this series, in striving after all the aspects of the fruit here. So let's think about the method of our obedience. The method of our obedience in the final three verses. Now, when I call it the method of our obedience, I don't mean to suggest that if you will just follow this recipe, if you just follow this method, if you do this and this and this, you will always and perfectly walk in unbroken obedience. Um, the Christian life just isn't that tidy. And our flesh is really that weak. But it is to say that we will fail so much more. We will fail so much more if we don't know the tools and the realities that we have at our disposal for obedience and plan to walk in it. Plan to walk in it. And like I said, I think Paul reminds us of three realities that are true and present for every believer to help us walk obediently in love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's the first reality. I'll call it the objective reality. The objective reality. Objective in the sense that it is a fixed and unchanging reality for the believer. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. It's an objective reality. What is that? Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Another way to say that, that Paul says often, we died with Christ. We died with Christ. That's how, if you flip back to chapter 2, that's, how, that's, that's exactly how Paul put it in another famous passage in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I allow live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, and so forth and so on. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. When did that happen? When he was crucified. That is called union with Christ. Beautiful. Union with Christ. When you trusted Christ, you were in the purpose and plan of God. You were united to him. When you repented and believed, you were united to him. And every single saving reality that Jesus Christ earned in his life 
became true of your life in that moment, it is as if you died on the cross for your sins. Because Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place. And you're united to Him. Where He went, you went. He was raised. You have been raised. A new creation in Him. Not only that, He ascended into heaven. And His intercession for you is His holding your place until you get there. This, this is union with Christ. Where He went, we went in Him. Where He is, we are in Him. These are objective, unchanging realities for the child of God. You can, if you are born again and you have repented of your sins, you're seeking to walk in repentance, trusting in Jesus Christ, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. Why should I let you in? You shouldn't let me in. Jesus did everything, right? If that's you... You can no more be held eternally condemned for your sins any more than Christ can be removed from the cross in your place. And you are no more helpless in your fight against your sins any more than Christ is still in the tomb. But He was raised. And you were raised with the same resurrection power to repent and believe and to be found in Him. That is exactly, that is exactly the foundation on which Paul says things like Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 14, where he says, So you also, you also, believer, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law but under grace. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon it to be the case, because it is. You are under no compulsion ever to sin. You're never under any compulsion to sin. Every sin is freely chosen, unnecessarily. Well, on what authority do I say that? Because that's exactly what Paul says there. When we sin, we are presenting ourselves to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. We're presenting ourselves. But in Christ, it has no dominion over us. That's the objective reality. How can you stumble into sexual sin when that's on your mind. 
That's the point. We'll see that even more clearly because there's a second reality. The subjective reality. Subjective in the sense that this is what we most tangibly experience. This is what we most tangibly experience. And in practice, Paul says we live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 18, he says we are led by the Spirit. Paul has all kinds of phrases like this, different phrases that are all referring to the same thing. Living, walking, being led by the Spirit of God in, in our pursuit of holiness, self pursuit of self-control. But what does that actually look like? What does it actually look like to be led by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to, be, to live by the Spirit? What does Paul practically mean by that? Here's where I want you to actually flip in your Bibles if you can. You're going to be shortchanged if you don't, but you'll be enriched if you do. What does he mean by, what does Paul the Apostle mean by being led by, walking by, living by the Spirit? What does that look like in practice? I think we get a clue in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And if you read Romans 8, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but if you read Romans 8, he's got a lot of these different phrases all over the place, just like, just like he has in Galatians 5. And when you get to Romans 8, I just want to look at a couple of verses here and make a connection to another place. Look at verse 13. But if, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right. That's getting a little more practical, a little more tangible. Let's, let's break it down into simpler phrases. What's another? If you feel like you understand what he means by the deeds of the body that we need to put to death, what's another Word. What's another Bible word, theological word that we have for the deeds of the body? Sin. Okay? So you could rephrase it. If by the Spirit you put to death sin, you'll live. What's a, what's a simpler way to say put to death? Kill. So if by the Spirit you kill sin, you'll live. If by the Spirit, well, that's what I want to do. I want to kill sin. I want to, if it's by the Spirit, that's what I want to do. But how do I do it? By the Spirit. What does it mean? By the Spirit, kill sin. That's what we're after. What does he mean by by the Spirit? Well, look again carefully at verse 13. Because it seems to me, he, the, whole, the whole verse is, if you live according to the flesh... That's one category over here. Live according to the flesh. You'll die, but if by the Spirit. It seems to me, although they're slightly unequal in the way you phrased it, they mean the same thing, that by the Spirit or living according to the Spirit is the opposite of living according to the flesh, right? It's the counterpart. So by the Spirit, 
is another way of saying living according to the Spirit. But what does that look like practically? He says in verse 13, we've got to do it to kill sin. We'll live. That's what we're after. So I th- what does that mean? I think if we look earlier in the chapter, we get a clue earlier in verse 5. There he says, For those who live according to the flesh, and he already saw that phrase in verse 13, those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Comma. But those who live according to the Spirit, I said that's another way of saying by the Spirit, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So, according to Paul there, practically speaking, to live by the Spirit or live according to the Spirit is to set your minds on the things of the Spirit. And in so doing, you can kill sin, walk in holiness. Well, we're one step closer. But what does that mean? What are the things of the Spirit? I know, I know that doing something by the Spirit, I know to live according to the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, to what all the other phrases he uses. It means, according to Romans 8, 5, I need to set my mind on something. That something being the things of the Spirit. But what is that? There's only one other place that I'm aware of where Paul uses the phrase, the things of the Spirit. The, what do you, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So turn, turn, take a right, a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Look with me first at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. There's that phrase. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's the same things people who live according to the Spirit are to set their minds on. Natural man does not accept them. For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, them being the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. So there's that phrase again. But in this context, what are they? In this context, what are the things of the Spirit? Context. Look up at the verse right before it, verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit of God words taught by the Spirit of God the things of the Spirit are words taught by the Spirit of God is that getting closer to what we think that is? (laughs) that's Scripture All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Men spoke, 2 Peter 1, 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's words. Scripture is the Spirit's words. So you take that thought, you don't have to turn, or you just can if you want to, you take that thought, 
the things of the Spirit, is Scripture. These are His things. These are His words. If you take that back to Romans 8.13, to the original verse, if by the Spirit, by the things of the Spirit, by the words of the Spirit, by Scripture, Spirit-inspired Scripture, you kill sin. You will live. And that, that agrees completely with what, what we've said so many times about when we talk about being filled with the Spirit. I've talked, talked about Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, and I've said, that's a command. It's a command not to get drunk with wine, and it's a command to be filled with the Spirit. It is just, a much, it's just, just as much a sin it's just as much a disobeying of a command not to be filled with the Spirit as it is to get drunk with wine. That's a big deal. How do I obey that? You're commanding me to be filled with the Spirit. How do I do, what do I need to do to do that? The parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18, it's Colossians 3.16. You might know what that says. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the... That's the parallel passage to Ephesians 5.18. To walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit is to walk in the fullness of His Word. Practically speaking, this simply means we walk in obedience, we walk in self-control, in sexual matters, in sensual matters, in anger matters, all the matters. We walk in obedience by setting our minds constantly on the Word of God and prayerfully asking the help of the Spirit of God throughout the day. It's just that simple. Holy Spirit, I'm just, I'm just marinating in your Word. I'm just, I'm, the, the, the stories, the words are just rolling around in my mind, in my heart, and I'm asking you, help me not to present myself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. To present myself, my words, and my thoughts, my heart, to you as instruments of righteousness. If you never read and meditate on the Word of God, you will never have the mind of Christ and you will be without the sword of the Spirit to fight the battles in your day. It's going on in your mind. It's going on in your flesh. That's the subjective reality. There's one more reality that Paul reminds us of in the last verse of the chapter. Verse 26, and that is the collective reality. The collective reality. What does he say in verse 26? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What is the most pervasive reality in that verse? Us and one another. Us and one another. We hold each other accountable, we encourage each other, we set good examples for each other. Like Hebrews 10.24 says, we, we consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. What am, I, what am I getting at? I'm going to draw it to a close here. Isolation is deadly. It's deadly. When you remove yourself from the life of the church, you will kill yourself spiritually. 
Here's the other, here's the application of that. Not of that, just a different application. When you stumble and you fall into sin, heck, when you run into sin, that is not the time to pull away from the church in shame. That is the time to run to the church for help. It is. We've got, yeah. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in all these things. These are, these are works. Self-control is just the last one of them. These are works. All these things are works that the Holy Spirit does in us and He does it through objective realities of reminding ourselves daily of the objective reality and promises of the gospel. And He does it through immersing ourselves constantly in the things of the Spirit, the Word of God, and committing ourselves wholeheartedly to the people of God. That's, that's precisely why. Ephesians 5.18 is in the plural. Y'all be filled with the Spirit. Y'all, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, in y'all, richly. If, he, if they were southern, it would have said y'all. Bottom line is this. Two ingredients, the Holy Spirit and time, can and will do immeasurably more than we could ask or think. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, these precious words and Thank you for this whole series. I pray that um, I pray that uh, as a result of thinking about these things, that um, you would make us more like Christ through the, the the fruit of the Spirit in us. And I pray, Lord, in this particular instance, I pray as we thought about about. Um, self-control and the particular application that that the New Testament itself gives that when the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit first thought about self-control they they thought thought about it first and foremost in terms of sexual purity self-control in, in sexual things Lord, through that, remind us that we don't live in a unique time. We don't live in a especially hard time with regard to these things. We feel that we feel pressure in these areas in our lives, temptation in these areas of our lives, because they did, and, it, and human nature is always the same. Lord, help us to hate it. Help us to walk in in, uh, in victorious self-control through the power of the Spirit.
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.